Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. My name is Bill Words. I'm your host today, and uh, this is episode 64. While Billy Joel's pressure is fading out in the background, this is the episode of March 10, 2022. The war in Ukraine is unfortunately raging on and again i will be posting the links in the description of this podcast of how you can support ukrainians um, in their fight against the uh, russian federation in this week's episode i will be uh, talking to uh, the director of liberalny institute in prague martin panik he was on the podcast before and he actually drove to the slovak ukrainian border to help people so you'll be able to listen to that interview at the end of this episode also in this episode, I'll be talking about farm to fork. There will be considerable changes made uh, to the overall sustainability question in the European Union as uh, the conflict in Ukraine rages on. And also my colleague Luca Bertoletti from Italy is joining the podcast to talk about how Italy is looking for energy alternatives, especially natural gas in places like Algeria and Qatar. So let's get started. Everything is back on the table in European policy making as uh, the war in Ukraine uh, continues. Uh, Russia is still invading and trying to capture city after city, but being held back by uh, brave Ukrainian soldiers who are um, shooting back and uh, defending their country. Now, of course, this situation has had quite some implications already on European policy. Um, now, the, the announcement um, on Wednesday, uh, which is that uh, Ukraine will stop the exports of uh, wheat and oat um, because the country does need it for its own um, and for its own supply. And of course, a lot of the farmers won't be harvesting either because their cropland is a is a wasteland um, or a war zone even or because they themselves are engaging uh, in, in the war themselves. So uh, also some numbers for you to just kind of get a perspective on the importance of uh, Ukrainian exports. Ukraine makes up about 30% of the world's trade in wheat and barley, 17% of corn, and over half of sunflower oil and seeds. Uh, by the way, that's 88% uh, going to Europe. It's also the EU's main trade partner for non-GMO soybeans used as animal feed, as well as 41% of rapeseed and 26% of honey. Uh, we can already see that the prices of uh, wheat and corn are skyrocketing. Now that the export ban goes into effect in Ukraine, that will probably get only worse. And of course, I'd ask questions about our own policies in the European Union. The farm-to-fork strategy of the European Union seeks to reduce farmland altogether, switch to organic, reduce pesticide use. And all of that is now coming into question. We got the news this week that uh, the European People's Party, the strongest parliamentary group in the European Parliament, is now uh, asking the European uh, Commission to put a complete stop on the farm-to-fork strategy for now, which is, yeah, in my view, quite telling about the whole uh, principle of, of the farm-to-fork strategy, because what it essentially tells us is that it is not resilient. The food security system is not resilient in times of crisis. And, and I think that should really tell us a lot about the entire approach to the farm-to-fork strategy. Um, a lot of the green sustainability goals will now be back on the table. Uh, we also see this with energy. The European Commission has suspended the uh, for now, and is reworking the energy strategy of the European uh, Union. And this has to do a lot with the fact that, for instance, blue hydrogen, which was heavily featured in the energy strategy, is uh, based on the need uh, for, for natural gas. So hydrogen there, not a good alternative. Either renewables cannot be deployed as fast as many thought. And I think 
Germany's energy shift has shown that, Germany now having the highest electricity prices in all of the developed world, it really is not going well. And I think what, you know, many of the people can say who have been warning about this, about Nord Stream 2 in Germany, about the agricultural system, that it doesn't really work, it increases prices for consumers, is that unfortunately a lot of people can say, I told you so, but it doesn't feel as satisfying because it's off the back of many people who are suffering in Ukraine. But the realization in Europe now is that being reliant heavily uh, on imports is not a great idea, especially if farmers have the ability uh, through crop protection, through uh, um, more farm farmland if, if 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 so needed but also through uh, modern technology such as genetic engineering that that should be an option on the table and i think what we're going to see over the next weeks and months is that that this realization will hit hard and that we will be actually much faster in policy making on these issues so i hope that is one of the takeaways there because right now we already have food price inflation it's about seven and a half percent both in europe and 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 the u.s uh, it's it's affecting marginalized communities significantly, and that's only the result of the COVID pandemic. Now the war comes on top of it, with now nitrogen exports from, from Russia probably uh, being completely down to zero, which has an effect on um, uh, which has an effect on on fertilizers. I think all of these issues uh, will become uh, like will predominant will be predominant in the in the discourse over the next few weeks and months, and. Uh, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But but in any way, Europe, in order to stabilize prices, will really need to have swift action and bank on modern technologies and allow farmers to do their due diligence as to how and uh, and when and, and, and how often they want to produce. Uh, we really now at the hands of farmers and it's those people we need to trust. And then in other news, then, uh, Italy is looking for alternatives to its natural gas supply. Uh, it uh, was traveling to Algeria. The foreign minister was traveling to Algeria, but also Qatar. So I chatted to my colleague uh, from Italy, Luca Bertoletti, to find out more about what exactly Italy's goals are here. So, Luca, I read the news and I saw that uh, foreign minister of Italy, uh, Luigi Di Maio, is going uh, to different places. He recently went to Algeria. He traveled to Qatar as well in the look for energy alternative with the uh, conflict in Ukraine going on. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about what the Italian strategy is now that Russian gas is actually more of a risky product? Well, uh, thank you, Bill, for inviting me. Uh, Italian strategy is very... It's actually a long story because Italy originally was importing more gas. Uh, was first of all, Italy has very big amounts of gas inside Italy. So we actually, until the mid of 90s, 95, 96, uh, most of our gas, the gas was uh, inside Italy. So it was produced and extracted inside Italy. We decided to switch for less expensive uh, importing, especially from Algeria, until 2003. So from 95 till 2003, when uh, uh, there were some, let's say, civil war, uh, similar to civil war, some say, conflicts in that area, not really in Algeria, but there were some conflicts in that part of, uh, of Africa. So we decided to... Um, get most of our gas from uh, Russia, which was also way cheaper. Uh, fortunately, uh, we realized that it was not a great idea, but unfortunately, we realized it that it was too late. So more, more than 40% of Italian gas supplies come from Russia right now. Um, we realized it was not a great idea uh, around 2016, 
when Italy signed this agreement with uh, Azerbaijan for the production, uh, for the import of gas via the TAP, which is this Transanatolia pipeline, which goes from Azerbaijan to uh, Greece to Albania to Italy. And that was the first time that Italy decided to diversify these yeah, sorry. Diversify. Yeah. Diversify. <laughs> no <worries. yeah. laughs> Diversify. So, and from that moment, uh, we had a lot of internal issues. So you have to think that the Italian main party, Partito Democratico, is currently the former Communist Party. And most of the people, especially in the region where TAP is coming from or where the... Um, the regasificator should have been built because another problem is that we cannot import LGP actually from Qatar, for example, uh, because we don't have this terminal yet. Oh, well, we have, but very small. Uh, are people that were in the Communist Party when the Communist Party were taking money from the Soviet Union. So there is a very strong bond between Moscow and part of this party, uh, which created a lot of issues. Uh, so this strategy right now, to come back to your, that was to give you an idea of what this strategy is. It's very complicated, like everything in Italy, but the strategy is trying to get the LPG from Qatar in a minimum part and restart the pipeline because we actually do have a pipeline from Algeria to Sicily for next winter. It's very complicated. Sorry, go ahead. You mentioned you mentioned um, domestic production as well. Can you can you tell us a bit more about like what is the capacity there? Even because some countries are talking about domestic production, like what is that? Um, can that actually be a viable solution? Does Italy even have the infrastructure to like to use that right now? Where are we looking at, and what's the conversation in Italy? We do we do actually have it. Uh, we have uh, fourteen billion of. Um, cubic meter for year start from Italy. And our sea is actually, the Adriatic Sea, is actually well known for oil and gas uh, um, uh, judgment. So place where you can actually start. Uh, then in Lombardia, we actually, until the 90s, we were stuck almost 40% of the national supplies. We still have it as uh, um, national stocks. So we actually, we cannot use it, we are reserve. We use it just in case of war or in exceptional case. So it might be that we are gonna use that. But the only reason why we decided to actually cut the production in Italy and move abroad was, well, we have two reasons. One is the real reason, but importing from Russia is way cheaper than everything inside Italy and do investment in a country where it's really difficult to investment. And the second one was an environmental uh, reason so there is this uh, idea that uh, extracting gas is very uh, pollu- uh, creates a lot of pollution, which does not have any scientific uh, uh, proof, but uh, it's been uh, the mantra in Italy for the past uh, uh, 10, 15 years. So that's why we actually decline our uh, internal production. But Italy is actually full of uh, uh, stockpile of gas. But now let's move to the interview of this week. My guest this week is somebody you've heard before on this podcast, Martin Panek. He is the director of Liberani Institute in Prague, the Czech Republic. And he recently drove to the Slovak-Ukrainian border uh, to help people out who are, uh, as refugees, coming across that border. 
He was on a comparably small border crossing, but still he is able to give us some impressions. And also I asked him about sort of the political implications that the war in Ukraine uh, has for his country, but also Europe as a whole. So, uh, yeah, take it away. We should do a bit of a historical background here. Uh, Slovakia is maybe most of your listeners will know uh, used to be one country with uh, Czech Republic, with the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia. I was born in Czechoslovakia, actually, and uh, but I never knew it as a country because it dissolved before I had any, uh, uh, you know, knowledge of of this type of thing. But interestingly, if we go even more back, the part that is now the westernmost Ukraine also belonged to Czechoslovakia, and um, it's called the in uh, Czech and Ukrainian it's called Zakarpati. I'm not sure what's Zakarpatskaya Oblast or whatever is the English term. Not sure how to translate it, but we'll trust you on the on the on the region <laughs> and pronunciation. And so that that was that used to be part of Czechoslovakia too. And so of course there are many connections. I I understand that the people at the border in Slovakia speak some kind of dialect that is very similar or the same that the people in Ukraine at the border actually speak. And so, of course, there's a lot of cultural, you know, um, uh, mixture. Or, uh, this is personal for you as well, I, I imagine. Not for not for me personally. I don't I don't have any, you know, direct relatives or or uh, or anything like that with uh, the current Ukraine. But but Ukrainians have always been here, and uh, they're. Uh, the largest minority if you don't count the Slovaks because that doesn't really count uh, here so there's a lot of I have a lot of friends actually uh, current friends from Ukraine and uh, and of course it's it hits closer to home than the war in uh, Syria or other places uh, because this is literally just an eight hour drive uh, by car for, for us so it's it's natural that we want to help as much as, as we can. Yeah, so you did, you, you, you're saying an eight-hour drive, so you did that drive. What was the uh, motivation? I know you shared some of it on social media, but a lot of the listeners might not right. necessarily know you. Uh, what did you do? So the war started on Thursday two weeks ago, right? And uh, or the, the invasion into the Ukrainian proper uh, or whatever, uh, n- the invasion into the... Uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, Donetsk uh, oblasts began one day earlier, if I'm not mistaken. And I have a friend whose dad is a mayor of one of the towns close to the Slovak border, actually, a uh, uh, Ukrainian town. And she started organizing a uh, delivery of supplies and she asked us if we want to chip in and buy some stuff. And I thought, hmm. Unless the Ukrainians appreciate frozen pizza, I wouldn't know what, what to buy. So I, so I sent her money. And then I kept thinking about it and kept thinking, well, the weekend's here and I have nothing much to do. I, I can read Twitter on uh, in my bedroom or, or in the car. It doesn't make much difference to me. So I thought, why not go there and see what's happening and help if, if possible? I, I I told that to a friend and he thought it was a good idea and so we woke up on Saturday morning and decided to go. We rented a car, uh, bought 
bought some basic supplies that we knew uh, were needed and people sent us a lot of money so then we ended up with buying two full cars of, of goods and went to the border everybody told us uh, that there are enough places in the cars for the refugees uh, so that we will probably not be able to take somebody actually uh, to the Czech Republic or elsewhere but in the end, we found three migrants or three refugees who didn't have any uh, transport uh, agreed upon. So we took them back to Prague, and we realized that actually not all of not all the refugees have a agreed upon transport. And so we are uh, we have come back. Uh, the one of us has been there is now there for the fourth time, and each time we. Uh, we take some some people back uh, because we were there what was it the third fourth day of the invasion it was less organized than it is now I'm, I'm, I don't want to say that it's very organized uh, currently but for example the organization of the of matching the refugees to free slots in the cars has gotten a lot better so now you just go there uh, you say uh, where you're going or where you can go, how many places you have in your car, and they will match you refugees. Of course, we and, and and where do you drop where do you drop people off anyway? So like, how how does that work? Is there a system? Do people know where to go? How does that work? Well, uh, so far we only had people who had accommodation somehow uh, with friends or relatives in various places uh, Prague, Liberec, that's uh, another Czech town, uh, Dusseldorf uh, Dresden uh, Bratislava uh, we even had a, a group of people who went off to Malaga <laughs> and wow. so they have accommodation but they don't know how to get there, that, that's what we experienced, uh, other people might might have had uh, different kinds of refugees and we also only know the situation at one one border checkpoint uh, we don't we have no idea what it's like in other checkpoints because uh, there's still a job to do here so we didn't explore further and what what is the what does the checkpoint look like what is the just to describe it a bit so we can kind of imagine what you saw I understand it's a very small border crossing uh, in normal times because it's just a very small, I would say, village. I don't want to disparage it. Uh, maybe it's a town. Uh, that is like the the town is like three kilometers from the actual border and you're not allowed to go there by car to the uh, border crossing, uh, but you can go there on foot. We went there on foot to see what what's what and uh, it's very calm. It's there's not nothing really happening sometimes some people cross over and there are ngos who want to help like people in need and or the red cross and they will take care of people who who probably are uh, in the other situation who have no idea where to go or what to do they will provide them sim cards uh, basic food basic uh, hygiene hygienic supplies and, and stuff and then they either go or are taken to the actual village or, or township where uh, there are people with cars who can take them elsewhere or the the school there has been repurposed into some uh, refugee center so possibly if, if there are people who, who don't know where to go they can uh, stay the night there or I'm not really sure 
And so the people who traveled with you back to Prague or some of the, some of the refugees there, of course, uh, you shouldn't mention any names, but can you give us some of the background as to like their stories? Were you able to kind of talk about that? Uh, well, the communication is difficult, even though we are both uh, Slavic peoples. Uh, we try to communicate with them, of course, but uh, when they don't speak English, it's really difficult to... to uh, um, communicate because we are of the generation who didn't learn Russian at school so we try somehow to remember as many Russian words as we can <laughs> and sometimes it helps the communication sometimes there sometimes the Ukrainian words are similar to Czech or Slovak words so we kind of try everything possible to somehow get the point across but it's not for very you know um, long discussions Uh, but the last time we actually drove a mom, a single mom with her uh, 20-month-old uh, child, and she spoke English pretty well. Uh, so we learned that she was on the run. We took her, we picked her up on the 5th of March, and she said she was on the run from Kiev uh, from the 2nd of March. So she was already. It was her fourth day on the on the run. And she wow. was going to Düsseldorf, where she arrived on Sunday evening, I think. So it took five days for her. Uh, not not very not very pleasant. Uh, she was well educated, but didn't have much money to spend, of course. Uh, and uh, with you know being a single mom is difficult, and especially if you're if you're uh, fleeing war. Uh, and in the other car, we had a group of, it was a mom, a grandmother, and two very young children. I think the one was like two months and the other one was five or uh, four or five uh, years. And um, they were from further east, so probably even longer on the run. But, but uh, there the communication was more difficult because they didn't speak uh, any English or any English beyond very basic uh, phrases. Right. I uh, I wanted to ask you something that is that goes a bit more into the political. Uh, some of my uh, Czech friends who were at protests in, in, in Luxembourg and uh, uh, against the war, they, they had these placards made in which they made a comparison between the uh, between uh, 1938 uh, Czechoslovakia being invaded by uh, Nazi Germany and the situation now. So the appeasement uh, argument there. Um, is is that why? Well, you can you can talk to whether you think that's a similar situation, but also can you talk to um, why this might be very uh, uh, familiar to Czech people that the situation like a much bigger country invading you and, and, and aggressing uh, you is that um, how do you see that uh, perspective mm, uh, there are people who make this comparison especially I think to the uh, propaganda on the part of uh, now Russia and then uh, the uh, Nazi Germany because Uh, you can see propaganda posters from Hitler's uh, regime that uh, Czechoslovakia was actually threatening uh, his his country uh, in the same way that Putin now claims that Ukraine is actually was threatening war against him. Right, and that ethnically, that the Sudetenland yeah. that was ethnically German, that's why it should belong yes. to to Germany, right? And uh, but I I think the bigger motivator here is that people here are still really pissed at Russians 
because of the 40 years of occupation and especially all, uh, because of the 20 years of uh, Russian invasion uh, since you know the Prague Spring until until uh, the Velvet Revolution and you know we're they were the people here I think not me I didn't I didn't experience it so for me Russia as or Russian people were always just like any other uh, tourists from other countries I think but for the generation of my parents and grandparents they were maybe slowly becoming used to the to the reality that not every Russian is an invader and now this 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 came in and uh, from what we uh, hear a lot of Russians are actually supportive su uh, supportive of, of the regime and of the war not everybody it's I think very uh, heartwarming that there are protests protests in St. Petersburg or Moscow where there are thousands of people on the streets even even though they face you know jail for the, for protesting protesting so people really hate the Russian government to and the army to to say the least and uh, I th I think that's that's one of the biggest motivators why Czechs are really uh, supportive of Ukrainians and really, uh, really are going um, out of their way to help. Uh, because, as I said, you know we know Ukrainians; they're kind of close to us historically and even now. And uh, people really, really hate the Russian government. I had one more question for you, Martin. Because usually, when we when we meet, we talk about politics. So I do want to get more one more political question to you, and that is about the Czech Republic. The ramifications of this? Do you think there will be also political ramifications in the Czech Republic? Because you know, countries such as Hungary, um, closeness to Russian oligarchs has sometimes been relativized, and that might also change in Hungary with the with the with the pendulum of the of the of the political mindset swinging. Are there situ are there similar situations in the Czech Republic where? Uh, certain people, I mean, we see it by the way in France as well now as well, where sort of the, the, mm. the far right people who've kind of uh, been Putin apologists over time now have a much tougher time getting a political footing. Is there a similar situation in the Czech Republic where some people will have a really hard time with their easygoingness on, on Russia in the past? Well, that's uh, that's difficult. In in a way, Putin has done what uh, some people thought were, was uh, uh, not doable. He unified the you know American political <laughs> spectrum. He unified the Czech political spectrum. Even the anti-immigration parties or party is now saying, of oh, of course we should accept the refugees, and. Uh, I think so far there has been over one hundred thousand Ukrainians that uh, have been that, that come, uh, come over. So it's it's not trivial trivial numbers, but I don't see so far, except for some fringe groups, any any actual support for Putin. Um, even you know the president uh, who at uh, various points in time had some very strange comments uh, regarding the Russian Czech relationships. Now is saying that uh, Putin has is acting illegally and wants to give an award to the Ukrainian president, uh, a presidential uh, or the state states some kind of state award. Um, I don't I don't think so. so let me put it that, that way: people people who were against the Russian regime from the beginning they don't really 
I mean, they were they were not voters for Mr. Zeman or for the for the anti-immigrant party, so it, it's not going to change anything. I think they have to tread very uh, lightly here because they groomed their electorate to to this to these stupid conspiracy websites uh, and and uh, and so they are kind of doing an uh, about face and but it's for, the, for them and their voters to kind of uh, reconcile it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they'll find something. They'll find some, you know, a minuscule uh, something that they will again turn into into something really moronic. <laughs> but so so far, I think the political uh, spectrum here is very unified, uh, and uh, also luckily we have a more sensible government than we than we what we uh, used to have, who only did PR and nothing of substance. Now this government might actually be able to sit down and talk uh, about about how how to actually do something. I'm not I'm not saying uh, all of it is going to be very smart. Now they are thinking about you know price ceilings and stuff. Uh, but I think it's at least imaginable that they will uh, do something that will not be horrendously bad. <laughs> and. Uh, we'll see. It's still it's still very early days. You know, the response to the war. Uh, some some people have criticized it. It's slow, but uh, it uh, it's been only two weeks. And you know, the I was actually surprised that the response from the you know European governments was so quick. It happened. Uh, everything was agreed upon during the first weekend, which was like three or four days into the war. It was I think by historical standards, it was it was a remarkably quick. Yeah, everything that we thought was sort of a, a, a political uh, um, agreement or a political standard seems to be shifting. Everything is going out the window. I mean, the Green Deal, farm to fork, uh, whoever you thought people were on, everything's changed in German pacifism, delivering weapons, uh, Nord Stream 2, everything is like uh, being reconsidered. Martin, I think that's as much time as we have for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your great work. Thanks for having me and uh, uh, thanks for listening. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Martin Panek on Twitter at mmister. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn.